Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We get lucky here. Our booking team is really wonderful at piecing together the people, the voices, the conversation with the news flow. Let us move from Target with terrific earnings coming out. One of the great joys of TGT folks is they come out with just very crystal clear headlines of their financial performance. And as we well know, retail doing uh, better than good. Target with a sustained 30% margin. They say that this year's operating margin well above 2000 uh, 20 as well. We'll go into that as as we go along. So much of this is the state of the American economy. A great student of this is a guy who I started reading at Lehman Brothers years ago. He's one of those people that writes a three-page economic report and you hate him because you actually have to read the thing. Joseph Lavornia <laughs> joins us right now in the Texas after his public service to President Trump and the nation. Joe, wonderful to have you on. The great conundrum we have each day is the legs of the x-axis. We've got a boom economy. How long does the boom last? Thank you, uh, Tom, for having me on, everybody. The boom lasts uh, for a while. I mean, the, uh, the household looks excellent. You've got very high savings rates. You've got very, hell, very high wealth positions. The labor market's improving. I mean, there's some friction certainly in the economy, Tom, but the, the household looks great. I do worry that after a 2021 boom, we're going to slow perhaps more than people expect next year. But uh, but a recession is still many years away. Uh, when you get these recoveries, I know it was a pandemic-led downturn, but when you get these recoveries and now we're going to enter expansion mode in the second quarter with a big GDP number, they're not measured in terms of months, they're measured right. in terms of years. So it's going to last. Joe, I want to take your income statement analysis on the American economy. I want to fold it over to your former shop. George Cervellos holding, holding court with Deutsche Bank uh, in London, and he notes the exterior dynamics, the trade deficit, the flow of funds within our financial system, and the foreign owners of our bomb, our bonds, rather. Do we risk instabilities as we come out of this boom economy when we look at the trade deficit or the current account surplus deficit? I'm more, I'm more, well, right now, the current account surplus, the current account deficit time right now is about three and a half percent. It's on its way to four. It was over six percent back in the mid 2000s. I'm more concerned less about trade, but more about the fiscal side, where we're going to run a deficit this year of about 16 percent of GDP. And if we get this four trillion extra in spending, uh, we could see deficits in the 10 to 12 percent range for quite some time. So I'm more worried about the federal spending, much less so on the um, on, on the international side. Remember, imports are growing very strongly. They're growing about 40 percent. But that's because the demand is so strong. As per Target's results, the consumer is robust. So worry more about the government's fiscal commitments, much less so about the international side. Joe, what do you think needs to adjust, yields or foreign exchange? It will come through the foreign exchange market because the Fed is likely to depress yields if interest rates were to rise. So that would be a risk is that the dollar does soften. Right now, though, the dollar, as you were saying earlier, just regarding the euro the broad trade weighted dollar is about flat on the year it's down from where it was last year but that 
got a big surge because of the pandemic and the flight to quality. It's what we saw during the great financial crisis. But long term, the dollar still looks stable. If the dollar was to collapse or plunge, that's a different story. But I don't see that right now in the cars. That is, that's a risk, but I'd say it's a low probability risk. Is this a risk, though, a factor, Joe, that you think maybe we're not considering enough? And that's not that the dollar collapses. I'm not in that camp, and I'm not advocating or even questioning that right now. I just wonder, going forward from here, we have shifted from a dynamic where the U.S. has been importing disinflation, particularly from China, and that seems to be changing, Joe. It, oh, well, here's the thing, though, uh, Jonathan. If you look at the goods sector of the economy, it's booming. It's a big kink if you look at the growth, if you look at the dollar level. We're about, I think, 15% above trend, 10% above trend. It's a huge number. Where we've lagged is on the services side. So it doesn't surprise me that imports are strong. We've uh, depleted inventory, so manufacturing production is big. We're importing all sorts of goods and materials, which is why commodity prices are booming. As the economy reopens and service spending comes back, you're going to see those pressures on goods moderate, especially as factories get fully back up to speed. So what I see on the commodity pricing side is really this is a, is a post-pandemic price level adjustment, and we're going to see this inflation on the goods side dissipate. So I, I would still argue we're in a disinflationary environment. Uh, not an inflationary environment. Can you elaborate on that, Joe, particularly when it comes to wages, the idea that we're actually starting to see wage pressures on the lowest end to even the higher end of the income specter? Sure. I, the, the wage side, we are seeing lower end and middle income wages rise. We saw that under President Trump, actually, right before the pandemic, had very strong wage growth. But broadly speaking, I don't see much wage pressure. For example, if I look at the employment cost index, I see that we're growing only around 3%. We're actually, the trend through last year has actually slowed. If I look at the recent trends in average hourly earnings, I don't see much acceleration there. And unit labor costs are still growing under 2%. So there are some anecdotes of certain industries facing shortages. People certainly are having to pay up for labor. McDonald's, I think, was one company that comes to mind. But broadly speaking, I don't see much much wage pressure. And I think as the unemployment benefits expire in September, you're going to see more people come back to work. In fact, there are about 21 states now that are limiting federal unemployment benefits. So to the extent that that was a factor, perhaps hurting labor supply, you're going to see that labor supply come back in and you're going to see wage pressures moderate. So this raises a question for the Federal Reserve and the actions that they should be taking uh, right now. A lot of people have been critical, uh, including uh, Robert uh, Kaplan of the Dallas Fed, saying that the Fed should act sooner rather than later to counteract froth in markets. You seem to be saying that they're doing the right thing, that they're holding tight and that they should because these are transitory influence. What would you have to see to change your mind? So you would need to see two things. You need to see that wage pressure really start to accelerate some real cost push or, or demand pull wage inflation. I don't see that. That's number one. Number two, you have to see inflation expectations, market expectations and consumer measures of inflation expectations really turn up. On the market side, they have. They're at about two and a half percent if you look at five-year five forward swap rates. Uh, but still, that's not, with energy prices up at two and a half percent inflation rate mm -hmm. after a long period of, of, of undershooting is not very much. So you need wages and you need inflation expectations. Right. That's what I need to say. Joe, your career is a career of economic optimism. There's always a timeline, not of mourning in America, but just a real clear-eyed optimism on the U.S. economy. Do we massively misjudge now the x-axis? Are we just flying blind on the durability or duration of this fiscal and monetary stimulus that we have, where we grossly misjudge the positive benefits? 
potentially, yes, Tom, we do. I am an optimist. Uh, the CARES Act, the, the second CARES Act was a $2.3 trillion package. It was unanimous. There, were, I believe there was one person in Congress that voted against it. The Fed moved with incredible alacrity. The economy is recovering. Uh, clearly, as you know, we're, Washington is debating uh, a, an unprecedented fiscal stimulus or package of spending initiatives. Uh, and monetary policy has been very easy. So, yes, there is this possibility uh, that we are creating some great risks. Uh, for better or for worse, we are we are testing modern monetary theory in real time. So yes, there is a risk. <clears throat> However, I will say that the dynamism of the U.S. economy, its entrepreneurial spirit, uh, if you look at the business dynamic data, yes, uh, last year from the Census Bureau, I mean, there's a lot of incredible things that this economy does. So I'm still an optimist, but certainly there are risks, no question, Tom. Hey, Joe, it's good to catch up. It's good to see you. Come back soon. Joe Lavornia there. Natixis, CIB, Chief Economist of the Americas. Good news on retail. Stephanie Wissink nailed it at Jeffrey. She joins us this morning where she's recalibrated on comp sales and stuff. Stephanie, I want to get out on the x-axis to into the holiday season. Do you have any vision, any idea, any new information on where the retail juggernaut will be past August, past October? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, we're seeing evidence that the consumer is interested in re-engaging with retail. Actually, across the board, Walmart, Home Depot, Macy's, Target, Lowe's, all beat handily and all signaling that complementum has persisted in Q2. As we look to the back half, we're looking at a few key indicators. The first is back to school. That will be the next kind of signal of confidence that we're back into a cycle of normalcy. We didn't really have a back-to-school season last year. It was a very unusual back-to-school period. So this year we're looking for those signs that not only the youth are returning to the malls and to apparel retail, but are really going through the motions of a back-to-school purchasing cycle. We're also keeping an eye on what's happening in fashion. We've been in a bit of a fashion rut for a number of years. We've been living in leggings and fitness apparel. And uh, we're now seeing indications that she's exploring fashion again, that we might be seeing the early signs of a fashion cycle. And then lastly, I think we're just looking at the strength in home. Home improvement has been so strong over the course of the last 12 to 18 months, and home ownership is rising. So how durable is some of the investment in the home, and do we move from what we call hard home into soft home as we get into the back half of the year as well? So all of those things are top of mind for us looking at the consumer and how she is behaving and, and looking where she's prioritizing her dollars. Stephanie, can you give us a sense of whether some of these companies are gaining market share or whether they're just exploiting the reality of an incredible savings glut in American households from pandemic checks and other aspects and the fact they haven't gone out to spend? I mean, can you give us a sense of which will be the winners out of this pandemic spending boom? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because I think there's there are two classes. There are going to be the survivors, those that make it through. Clearly, there are some that aren't going to make it through. And then there are these winners. And I think that the upper class of winners really has three basic characteristics. Number one, they've used the pandemic to accelerate their omni-channel initiatives. They were already underway. They pressed the gas pedal down, and they effectively trained the consumer to adopt some of these click-and-collect curbside pickup models, which is actually net beneficial to margins. The second characteristic is that they upgraded their merchandise assortment. 
So they looked at the categories where they have clear definitive advantages and they pressed hard into those categories. And then third, and I think this is probably the one that's going to be the most curious to keep an eye on, is how they are engaging with their consumer. How are they going beyond just the transaction? Collecting data, personalizing the experience, customizing it, because we do know that as we come out of this pandemic, there is a cohort of shoppers that wants to go back into stores and wants to feel welcomed and that the shopping experience is at an elevated level. Otherwise, it's just easier to order online. So I think we're looking for those companies that have also spent time thinking about their store experience yeah. just as much as their digital experience. Raw materials, labor costs, all of the above has been a big concern. And, Stephanie, and just finally, just to come back to you and get a final comment on the price pressure that's coming through for some of these companies. What does that look like for the retailers? Yeah, every single company has talked about rising wage costs, particularly wage inflation, but also has signaled that there is some product price inflation that's likely to come through. So we're also monitoring the CPI as we get through the middle part of this year and into the back half. I do think we're going to see a step function in consumer pricing. Stephanie, got to leave it there. Thank you. Come back soon. Great call on Macy's. Yeah, today, what a rip that's been. Stephanie Wissick there, the Jefferies Equity Analyst. You know, there's some there's some interesting dynamics here on the inflation fears that are out there. We're going to do that. John's going to lead that off, but I'd like to greet Michael Shaul and say good morning with Marketfield Asset Management. And Michael, we've had more emails on your love of Nutella than anything else. Now we had an America in the 1960s. In 1960s, Michael, we had Tang and Sanka where in Europe they had Nutella, and that speaks volumes about the transatlantic divide that's there at each and every moment. Well, you know, I grew up in England as a kid with Lyle's Golden Syrup, which I continue to give to my children today. We didn't have Nutella in England. I mean, John, you know, they didn't have Nutella in England, but at the same time, John Farrell, that transatlantic divide is there is measured by Tang and Nutella. I had, I had Golden Syrup, too. Michael, I'm surprised you're giving that to your kids, though. I think we should probably move on and talk about this market. Let's we move are on the transatlantic divide. What I give my kids for breakfast. Carry on, I John. I know what you give them. I Eggos know. and Nutella. The stuff that goes, the waffle things that go in the toaster. And Maybe. You put some Nutella on toast. Excuse okay, me, John. Let's John, get back John on the rails, those waffle please. things, John. Those waffle things. Those are frightened words. Those waffle <laughs> things are Eggos. Okay. I said Eggos with Nutella All right. on. And then I called the Eggos the waffle things, just in case anyone in Europe How, might think they were actually eggs. How about those markets, John? How about John? those markets? We're defensive <laughs> this morning, Michael. Michael, just quickly, your take on the price action this morning. Yield tire, everything else lower. Crude, euro. Equities, your take this morning, please. You know, I, I think we're in a bit of a corrective phase. I mean, it, it's obviously centered around, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, what, what we call hope, which stands for highly optimistic projected earnings. That's sort of part of technology that everybody's sort of been, you know, banking on so, so furiously. I, I think that, that really is in what I would call a major correction at this point. And I think the overall market, you know, is responding to that. And, and I think this is typical in a, in a major transition of leadership, you know, which is, I think, away from technology and towards cyclicality. So, you know, we'll have periods when everything kind of goes up and periods when tech and the sort of hope stuff leads us lower. And, you know, we're in the latter right now. Why do you think that transition, though, persists, Michael? That transition from leadership, from the growth names, big tech, towards the more cyclical parts of this market? You know, because I think the global economy post-pandemic is radically different to the global economy pre-pandemic. And some of that is the direct effect of the disease. 
Um, and some of it is the, the radical change in, in fiscal and monetary policy globally. I mean, we're really not looking at the same set of circumstances in May 2021, but we were in January, you know, January 2020. And, and, and I think the market is slowly starting, you know, to look at that. So, I mean, one example of how things have changed is, you know, we have CPI over 4% right now. If you look at that another way, you know, any price earnings above 25 means that the earnings yield of that company is no longer keeping up with inflation. Uh, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, with CPI in, in the mid ones, um, everything in the S&P had a, had a comfortable real earnings yield. So we, we have a very different set of both market and monetary circumstances and economic circumstances right now. When we talk about the market influences, I want to talk about the risk that has been introduced by Bitcoin. Yes, we do have Bitcoin down significantly, and people are talking about how that's uh, indicative of a risk-off move. And yet, I've been looking this morning at PayPal, MasterCard, Tesla, Square, some pretty big companies that have significant Bitcoin exposure. And I'm wondering, at what point does a real drawdown in Bitcoin become something more systemic that a portfolio manager invested in U.S. equities has to pay attention to? You know, there is some crossover. I mean, uh, you know, three years ago when Bitcoin blew up, it really didn't matter. But, but right now, you know, there is some real institutional money and, and some real wealth management money in, in Bitcoin. And of course, there's a significant amount of, of market cap. But as I said, I, I think the hope trade, you know, which, which covers things like Tesla, uh, you know, is already in a, in a, in a, in a significant correction. Um, you know, and I think these stocks still have much further to fall over, uh, over a period of time. And I, I think we... You know, it, you know, it does have the potential to have sort of waves of panic attached, you know, waves of panic attached to it. But I don't think it's going to undermine the cyclical forces, which are also, you know, which are also in place at this point in, you know, at this point in time. So if I look ahead several months, I, I think there's quite a lot of cyclical equities in the U.S., and global indexes like Australia and the U.K., which are very cyclically focused, which I think could be significantly higher. And there's scope for significantly lower prices and a lot of the high multiple portions of, of the U.S. And, and, and global equity market. What is a, the profile of a panic in markets right now at a time when the Fed is keeping policies very easy and at a time of such incredible growth in earnings? Well, I, you know, it's it's a, it's a significant drawdown in you know in in, in prices, and and you know it, it has been a, a a fairly severe correction so far in these high multiple names. Uh, you know, the good thing is you're losing money you only just made. So uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is still higher than it was towards the end of the fourth quarter, 2020. But the declines from the 2021 high, yeah, is significant. There's a lot of stuff down 30 percent plus. Um, in a couple of months, which, which by any definition is a is a is a severe correction. Uh, now it's too early to say what what the end of today looks like, but uh, you know the S and P responding by going down one and a half two percent. There's a degree of panic in the market at that point. Michael, what's the opportunity in equities when you look at you know sectors and the different factors that are out there between small cap, mid cap, international, and a beleaguered EM? Where's the opportunity? Well, I, as I said, I think it was cyclical parts. And, you know, EM is a good example. I, I don't like the MSCI Emerging Market Index as a place to put money. But the reason is, is because it's now dominated by Asian technology companies, which is not really what I want to own right now. But, but some of the cyclical 
emerging market indexes still look just fine. Brazil looks cheap. Mexico looks fine. Russia looks fine. They just don't have a lot of market cap as far as the overall index is concerned. You could say the same about the S&P. I don't think it's the best benchmark to be in, but the cyclical portions of it, energy, materials, some of the financials, you know, I think look just fine. And, and, and globally, I, I think the two developed markets that really stand out are the UK and Australia, simply because of the makeup of their indexes. You know, the UK gives you a lot of materials and a lot of energy. Australia gives you a lot of financials and a lot of materials. Uh, and I think the, the underlying FX is also going to matter. You know, the Aussie dollar looks very, very cheap versus global commodity prices. And sterling is just coming out of its Brexit funk. I mean, sterling is exactly where it was when the Brexit vote went the wrong way. Uh, for most people in June 2016. Cable 141, 56. Michael, thank you, sir. Michael Shaw, Market Field Asset Management CEO. I think most Asians have this sense of otherness. And of course, I felt that, um, especially here on the mainland US. I mean, I've had people, Americans come up to me and say things to me like, where are you really from? Even while I was wearing our nation's uniform with the American flag on my shoulder and U.S. Army on my chest, uh, over my heart. The Lieutenant Colonel from Illinois, an important interview, David Rubenstein, with another wonderful and important peer-to-peer conversation. Look for that at 9 p.m. tonight. And Mr. Rubenstein joins us uh, right now on Tammy Duckworth. She is a politician but far, far more than that. It is a long, it's an exceptional story, David Rubenstein, from the Singapore School, the, uh, the, the Bangkok School, a father that moved around and moved around and moved around, and really there were some tough times to her war duty. What did she say to you about the war duty and where she is now in 2021? Well, she's, of course, now a uh, United States senator. She was considered by President Biden to be his vice presidential choice. And she came from very far away from that kind of uh, life. She grew up with a fair amount of poverty in Thailand, then in Hawaii, and then ultimately decided to become a helicopter pilot. And for the Illinois National Guard, she went over to Iraq. And tragically, she lost her legs in a helicopter um, accident. And as a result, um, she had to rebuild her life. But since that time, she was elected to Congress, served in the Obama administration, and has mothered two children. David, the immediate point is Asia Americans and how they relate to the rest of this country. She has a unique and important perspective. What did she say about anti-Asian comments? Well, she thinks that despite the fact that she's a United States senator and gave a large part of her body to the United States government, in effect, through the tragic accident that occurred while she was fighting on our behalf, um, she's still discriminated against. Clearly, she's in a different position than she was when she was younger, but she still thinks that discrimination against Asian Americans is fairly evident across the country and getting worse, and she's fighting, trying to fight it. You know, one thing that's so great about your interviews is you always get to the human side of people who are in places of high power. And I'm wondering if you can give a sense of how some of these images of some of these uh, consequences, Asian-American discrimination and some of the social changes that have come from the pandemic have colored her views when it comes to pushing certain parts of the Biden administration's agenda. There's no doubt that uh, the recent uh, pandemic has Uh, focus more attention on Asians. Many people uh, in the United States think that everybody from Asia is from China, in effect, and they're 
while they may be upset about China, they, they take it out against all Asians and they shouldn't be taking it out against anybody, really, because nobody in the United States really had anything to do with that who was an Asian-American or Asian. But anyway, that's the way the life uh, has evolved, uh, sadly. I do think that she is determined to do more about it and try to do what she can as a United States senator. But the most important thing is, to me, that for all the things that she's had to go through, she doesn't seem to have any bitterness. You know, she lost her legs in an accident where she didn't have to go on that mission. She didn't have to go to Iraq. She volunteered. She didn't have to go on that mission where the, the helicopter crashed. She volunteered. And she basically put her life back together again. Uh, she and her husband uh, had two children subsequent to that. She got elected to Congress. And she's very, relatively cheerful. I don't see how anybody could be that cheerful given what she's uh, been through. But she, she doesn't really... Uh, you know, have a bitterness that I would, would have thought she would have had. It's an compelling story. Yeah, it definitely is. And the other thing that she uh, has happiness, even as she juggles a pretty big workload and a pretty big home load. And she talked a little bit about how it is challenging uh, to go back and forth within both of those. And it does speak to the Biden administration's plan for child tax credits and for other areas to help families. Can you give us a sense of how much mainstream support she sees this having versus some of the pushback where people are saying, stop trying to shoehorn in certain agendas into this broader uh, issue that we have right now fighting and emerging from the pandemic? Well, there's no doubt that the pandemic has been the main focus of members of Congress for a while. But I think now people are beginning to look at other issues. And clearly, the, the tax issues and the infrastructure issues are things she's worried about and working on. But I think she has a unique voice. Um, she's one of the few people who've served in Congress with these kind of uh, uh, tragic accidents that she's gone through. And she's living a full life now. She's got two young children. She's married. Um, she's got responsibilities back in Illinois. She juggles all that and does it pretty well, I would say. And uh, it's really an inspirational story about how somebody can come from very, very modest circumstances, rise up in our country, have great sacrifices to the country and not be bitter about what happened to her. And now she's serving the country. So it's a great human dimension story. And um, she wrote a great book about it, which I talked to her about in the, in the interview. David, one final question. What did she say about the future of her Democratic Party? When you're from Illinois, it's a certain Democratic politics. What did she say nationally about the Democrats to 2022? We didn't really get into that. My guess is that she's from a state that's pretty Democratic, and I think she uh, reflects the, the mainstream of that uh, Democratic thought. But I think she feels that uh, better... Um, a bipartisan cooperation in Congress would be a good thing. She's trying to bring that about, but it's not easy to do. She is working across the aisles on certain things she cares about, and I do think she's a great symbol for that kind of cooperation. David, thank you for the time. David Rubenstein, a Carlisle Group co-founder, and of course the interview with Mr. Rubenstein, the senator from Illinois, Tammy Duckworth, David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer -peer conversations. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.